When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, are you ready for some money rehab? Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. And should I have a 401k? Because you don't do it? No, I never. Girl! You think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't. Charge for wasting our time. I will take a check. Like a old school You recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. The cold lapping. For some of us, it's the dog days of the season and the last opportunity to get our hot girl summer on. For CEOs, it's earnings call season. Definitely not as fun, but perhaps more important. But what does earnings season actually mean? And why should we care? To help explain, I'm talking to John Zimmer, co-founder and president of Lyft. Well, John, it's great to say welcome to Money Rehab. Thanks for having me. So you started this little company called Lyft. Uh, You're currently the president of the company. For those who don't know the origin story, can you just give us an idea of how Lyft started and what you were doing pre-Lyft? Sure. Well, it starts with with my co-founder, Logan, who grew up in L.A. hating traffic. Uh, as many people in LA, I'm sure, do. And uh, when he went to UC Santa Barbara, he wanted to make an experiment of himself, not bring a car, use all the you know transit systems. Uh, it was a bike system in, in Santa Barbara. And then he invented a car sharing program on campus using the university's fleet vehicles. So kind of like Zipcar, but he built it from scratch. And that got the transit board's attention. They elected him as the youngest member ever to Santa Barbara County Transit Board. And he was the only person that actually rode the bus who was making these multi-billion dollar decisions on how people get around. And um, he quickly grew frustrated in that public transit is an amazing promise of providing affordable transportation for everyone, but the ability to scale it was very limited. Um, And it was dependent on tax revenue. So he tried to increase tax revenue. That wasn't that popular. Uh, That didn't work. And so basically, because in the United States... The average bus ride uh, only recovers about 30% of the cost, meaning if you pay $3, the ride actually costs 10. Uh, so it's not scalable without tax money. Yeah. It's, it doesn't really operate like a business. Um, and so he said, how could we make a more scalable form of affordable transportation? He traveled to Africa and he had this really amazing time. Uh, just learning from other cultures. And he saw in Zimbabwe, people sharing rides out of necessity. In many developing countries, they have these uh, shared taxis that uh, a private individual who owns a van just picks people up along the way. Even in New York City, you have the dollar van, um, sometimes in the outer boroughs. And so that was his inspiration. And so our first company together, uh, he named before we knew each other called Zimride, named after Zimbabwe. Stop. 
super weird because my last name is Zimmer. Um, it was fake. And I had been, I had been working kind of my, my background. I'd been working in hospitality from the age of 16, was a phone operator in Hyatt Hotels, uh, went to study hospitality at Cornell Hotel School and wanted to create a, uh, or, or saw cities themselves as the most important hospitality experience, but that the cities that we're building today or that had been built over the last hundred years were built for cars and not people. And so that was my way in and, and kind of my interest. I started writing a business plan for uh, a ride-sharing network. Um, and Logan had already started one called Zimride and, and we paired up and and then Zimride turned into Lyft. You didn't want to keep the name? You just no. didn't want to be so <clears throat> egoistic. <laughs> yeah, no, I had, I had when I, I would have to like explain the story, like it's named after Zimbabwe, not me. And I'm yeah, like, oh, right. I thought you had a big ego. Um, <laughs> And and so no, but it, it just it wasn't the best name. Lyft is a much better name. Fast forward a few years later, uh, to 2022. There's pandemic, labor shortages, the Great Recession, re- the Great Resignation. I suppose another recession. All things that are hard on so many companies, including rideshare companies. But you guys just had an earnings call where you reported some killer record earnings. First of all. Congrats, Mazel Tov. Thank you. Uh, before we dig into Lyft's earnings, which I definitely want to do, I want to use Lyft, if you will, indulge me as a case study of what earnings are. So as people are learning more about financial literacy and becoming investors, can you start by giving us a little background on what even earnings are, who has to report earnings, how often and all of that? Yeah. So as a public company, we report earnings every quarter. And it's a way for our investors to hold us accountable uh, to growing long-term shareholder value. And uh, particularly right now, investors are really focused on how profitable is the business and can the business uh, produce cash. Um, in you know prior years, that was always that's not a surprise. That's not new. That's always uh, extremely important. Over you know prior years there was a lot more energy and uh, credit given to fast-growing tech startups uh, and the promise that profits would come. In a recession after the pandemic, uh, the kind of tolerance for that type of growth without profit uh, went away. And so that's the the new market reality, uh, one that we are fortunate to be in a good position to execute against. Uh, and yes, we had our our highest, uh, what is called adjusted EBITDA um, earnings uh, this past quarter. So if you're talking to somebody who might use Lyft as a consumer, loves the company, loves the brand, wants to buy the stock, maybe missed out on this sort of uh, 46% jump when it was on sale uh, a few weeks ago, I suppose, and still wants to invest, what would you tell them to look at when they're looking at analyzing a company like Lyft? What other metrics beyond EBITDA should they take a look at? Yeah, I mean, first is kind of what you said is are you know, if you're a consumer of a product and you like the product, you believe in the product, I think that's really helpful. Um, obviously then you need to go into the the numbers, but first is, you know, are other people gonna like this product? Are other other people gonna buy this product? Um, is this a product that you see being important uh, over the next decade? Is, is a great first step to to kind of thinking about a, a company. 
you know, then, you know, if you're looking at the company's earnings, um, particularly in this environment, as, as I said, looking at the company's uh, ability to create profit uh, is critical. If, if we do go into a recession, um, preserving cash, if demand for services or products goes down, is quite important. So it's also helpful to understand how much cash does the company have. Um, and then what is true in a recession? For some services, like I would argue transportation, transportation is quite durable in a recession. People still need to get around. Uh, whereas other things that are nice to have products uh, might not fare as well. I think it's so spot on and smart of you to remind newbie investors, John, that they are investors just by being consumers and that it's, you know, not rocket science. If you like something as a consumer, consumers drive all these other metrics, too. So when somebody is intimidated by the world of investing, I constantly say, just what are you buying? Like, are you buying Lululemon? Are you taking a lift? Like, those are really important things to keep in mind beyond all of the other like alphabet soup stuff. Absolutely. So let's go into Lyft's earnings specifically. How do you explain these uh, improved earnings? So over the last you know few quarters, we've taken to heart a lot of the changes in the market um, and the feedback we've gotten. And one of the main things we did in our second quarter is that we slowed uh, the hiring that we were doing. And by slowing the hiring, and in some cases stopping the hiring, we reduced the fact that our operating costs were increasing. And so as we grow our demand, so rides go up, which they have been going up, when we hit a post-COVID high this past quarter for for rides uh, and revenue, then uh, if our operating costs go up less, then we become more profitable. Um, and so we're, we're trying to be much more careful around controlling our operating costs uh, while driving uh, more and more revenue. So slowing hiring, though, doesn't mean firing. No, we did. Uh, in one instance, there was uh, a business unit we had that uh, no longer made sense for our strategy. That was a first party car rental program we had in about five markets. We also had a third party car rental, which means, you know, with our partners, uh, like Hertz and Sixth, uh, where you can get a rental through Lyft. Um, that was way more scalable. That was in 30 plus markets. And so we made a business decision um, that was to uh, stop investing in that unit. There was some some job loss. Uh, we tried as hard as possible for uh, those team members to find other roles that were open within the company. Um, but for the most part, uh, no, we we don't feel like there's a a need to reduce the number of people at the company. Uh, more so, just to make sure all of our resources and investments are focused on the highest ROI investments. You mentioned uh, the car rental program that you had. If people didn't know that, uh, you have other programs like bikes and yeah. other things. What else beyond ride sharing is Lyft involved in? Yeah, ultimately, we want Lyft to be this one-stop place for you to go for all your transportation needs. And so we started, and what we're known for is, is the ride sharing. And even within ride sharing, you can get a shared ride that is now coming back to many markets uh, where you get matched with someone else and therefore have a lower cost. Uh, you can get a regular sedan or you can get a premium or luxury vehicle. 
And then uh, outside of ride sharing, we have rental cars that you can uh, book easily in the app. You get, uh, if you're not uh, close to uh, the rental location, oftentimes we'll provide lift credit to get a ride to the rental location. So we're kind of tying together these different modes. Uh, and then we have a bike and scooter business. If you're in a market like New York City, City Bike is owned by Lyft. Chicago, Divi is owned by Lyft. And uh, we're also experimenting uh, with different services uh, for car owners. And so the again, the idea is the average American household spends more money on the car or transportation than they do on anything else except the home. So it's the second highest household expense at nine to $10,000 every year. And our goal is to provide a large number of options that allow people to bring down that cost and improve their experience. Hold on to your wallets, boys and girls. Money Rehab will be right back. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now for some more money rehab. A lot of options, a lot of solutions. So you can get uh, a Lux ride. Every once in a while, you can get a John Zimmer ride. You can get yeah. the co-founder special. How does that happen? Sometimes you not only what, what was that commercial when we were growing up? It's like the hair club for men or something. Not only yeah, am I not, a not only uh, the owner, I'm a I'm a client or <laughs> yeah, something. That's right. So um, not only are you co-founder, but sometimes you're a driver. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, it started as a tradition in the early days. Obviously, uh, Logan, my co-founder, and I met every driver that came on the platform. We care deeply about the driver community and about building community uh, and about the sense of hospitality between our drivers and riders. And it goes both ways. And one thing that's super important to me is that obviously I use the rider experience as, as a customer. It's easy because I you know always want to get around. Uh, but I also want to make sure that I stay as close as possible to the driver experience and the driver community. And so this is a tradition 
uh, that I started uh, for myself in our first year where I drove on New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, the reason I drive on New the reason I picked New Year's Eve is because it's uh, one of the most in-demand nights for uh, rides and for drivers. And if you're driving on that night, you're making sacrifices, uh, not being with your family uh, and taking care of riders so that they can have a safe ride home if they've had a few drinks. And so, um, and it's also, you know, in some ways, because it's so busy, a more complicated night. So I didn't want to give myself too easy of a task uh, to drive when it's less busy. So anyway, I drive, I've driven on every New Year's Eve uh, since our beginning. So it's about 10 years now uh, that we've been in business. Uh, and it's something I plan to continue to do every year. Talk about ultimate undercover boss style. I also recently read uh, an insider piece published uh, about Lyft this week that you guys are continuing to experiment with driver incentives. So kudos on that. Can you outline some of the driver incentives that you've introduced uh, during the pandemic and what you're still considering? Absolutely. So uh, we're our goal is to create one of, if not the best way for people to make supplemental income with ultimate flexibility. And so right now, uh, driver earnings on average are about $37 an hour uh, that you can make driving on the platform that includes tips and these incentives we talk about. Um, and one of the things that we're really investing in right now is giving even more information uh, and transparency to drivers so they can pick the trips that best match uh, what they're looking to do. So for example, uh, today, most rides come in as a ride request uh, uh, and you accept, you know, because you want to get the next ride. Uh, the uh, new products that we've pushed out in some markets and for our, uh, the the top uh, drivers at this point, and we'll go to all drivers uh, soon, uh, is the ability to see uh, how far is that trip um, and how much uh, will I earn on that space specific trip. So we're excited to even better align incentives because sometimes drivers uh, want to work within a certain geography uh, or sometimes drivers have another appointment they need to get to in an hour or two and they, they don't want to be brought too far out of their way. Um, and so we're working to make those incentives even more aligned with what they're looking to do for work. So shareholders are happy these days. Uh, drivers, it sounds like, are happy. Uh, where does that leave passengers? Are the passengers the ones that are paying for these incentives or how will it work? Will they be seeing any new features in the coming months or years? Yeah, so riders uh, are happy as, as measured by the fact that demand is increasing quarter over quarter. More and more people are coming back to Lyft uh, and, and they'll notice that we've made a lot of improvements to the app. So within every mode, uh, if you have uh, less money you want to spend on the ride, you have way more options than than prior to the pandemic. So uh, again, we're bringing back shared rides, which is our, our lowest cost option. But even for the regular sedan uh, ride or the regular Lyft ride, you can get uh, a product we call wait and save, where if you're willing to wait a few extra minutes, uh, we can actually pass some savings on to you because sometimes in that exact moment, we have so much demand that it's cheaper for us to manage the overall marketplace if we uh, if you're willing to wait five to ten minutes. And so uh, again, demand is hitting uh, post pandemic records. Uh, we're adding these new features for riders to kind of ideally match what's more important to you, price or time. Uh, and and we're excited about the results we're seeing. What has gas prices done to all of this? So for drivers, we added a fifty five cent gas surcharge. Um, and that is passed through. So the rider does does pay that. 
um, it's included in the price. Um, and you know, good news over the last couple of months, we are seeing gas prices come down. We've still uh, maintained that that surcharge for the time being. And so with this increased demand, is this showing you that the strength of the consumer at large is stronger than it's been in the last few years? Absolutely. I mean, for us specifically, we're coming off of uh, the impacts of a pandemic where a lot of people didn't want to be next to people uh, if uh, they didn't know them or or they weren't comfortable, um, worried about getting uh, COVID. And so we're kind of building back and we have so much momentum coming off of what was a really tough period that uh, we are seeing strength in the return of demand. Could it be stronger if the kind of looming uh, recession or, or whatever is, you know, potentially out there wasn't there? Uh, I'm sure it could be even stronger. But but again, we're happy with the momentum. And how do you deal with that uh, as a co-founder as president of a company when you have a bunch of these so-called black swan events or things that you can't possibly predict with all of your modeling and all of your charts and all of the planning? You know, one is experience. Over the last 10 years, we've been through quite the ringer. I mean, we, when we started, uh, our, our ma- main competitor, uh, who I won't name. <laughs> uh, you have a competitor? Had, yeah. I didn't know. They had 30 times as much cash as us in the early days. Um, and, uh, we had to out execute and that, that was very, very difficult. And we rose up from single digit percent market share, uh, to having a couple markets over majority market share and kind of national average between 30 and 40%. Um, and then obviously we dealt with a pandemic that overnight, basically within, uh, a month took away 70 plus percent of, of the business. And we had to be incredibly flexible and kind of turn on a dime and and get to this adjusted profit number uh, with a lot less revenue. Um, and now we're seeing, uh, you know, this potential of a recession. I'd say that this is still challenging, but of of the challenges we've faced uh, historically, uh, a lot less challenging than the the lack of capital compared to our competitor and a pandemic that wiped out seventy percent of rides. So. Yeah. I think you build a, a tougher skin and you also build internally uh, different operating mechanisms to handle change. So it sounds like the pandemic wasn't your first apocalypse. Uh, it was not. Uh, it was also not the hardest thing we faced, although it was very hard. And does it suck more now being a public company? I mean, It always sucks and there's always chaos. And that's the only thing that's ultimately constant. But for a while, you weren't a public company. So you dealt with that between you and Logan. I suppose, and the rest of the team. But how did yeah. that change in the pressure being public? There, there are moments that suck more. I'd say like the fact that you have a external barometer that is, you know, goes up and down sometimes uh, with extreme volatility related to external events as well as, you know, events specific to us, that um, that that can be difficult but if you have a long-term view and you you don't let those things get to you too much and you just heads down operate, I think overall it is a positive. Uh, it it is again if you kind of uh, blur your eyes on the short-term volatility and think about what the market is, you know, telling not only our company but all of these companies, while the it might not always be a straight line trend of sharing these feedback, I 
think overall it is it is helpful. And by going public, we were able to raise enough capital that allowed us to not need to raise any more capital uh, ever again. So overall, I'd say it's a positive, although, yes, there are there are shitty or sucky periods. Is it possible to blur your eyes or put your blinders on or whatever? Like, how often do you check your stock price? Um, honestly. It is uh, honestly more frequently than I should. Um, and so I'm probably looking at it every day. Um, part of it is I need to know what's happening because I'm, you know, we're managing a team, uh, that looks at it. Hopefully they don't look at it that frequently. Um, but it is part of many of our team members compensation. And I care very deeply about them having a good experience. Uh, and, and I care deeply about our ability to retain them. Um, and so it's a, it's an important data point for me to understand. I think it's good to know and important to know and something we need to manage. But the blurry eyes comment is more about, okay, there's only like the things we control on it. I want to know about, and I want to control the things that are less in our control. I I need to make sure I put more of uh, my energy and the team's energy into things that will drive long-term value for shareholders and for the overall mission. And how would you suggest, or maybe even take this advice yourself to kind of wean yourself away from the compulsion of constantly refreshing and refreshing if you're, let's say, an employee at a public company and a lot of your comp is involved in it, or if you're a new investor, you know, it's very cool to say you're a longtime customer of Lyft. Now you can buy the stock and now you're an investor. But how do you have boundaries? Yeah, I mean, I think I think just setting a a goal for your investment, just jumping into an investment without a, a goal, I think uh, is not ideal. So if your goal is over three years to see that stock go up X or Y percent because you believe it's undervalued or believe they can do a, B, or C. That is helpful to have that. Okay, in three years, I'd like to see this type of return, and therefore, you know, I, I really only need to check it. Literally every year. Now, I doubt people will, because their money's on the line. Uh, it is a normal thing to want to check it. We had one investor who I won't name, when uh, during our IPO, um, and they said, "Hey." just so you know, we're extremely long-term investors. We're probably not going to check your stock for the first few years. Um, Whatever. (laughs) No, this was, this was like, this is like a certain, like, um, like institutional type of of capital that actually I, I I do believe they do do that. Um, So for me, it's helpful as like most investors will not do that. And most people will not do that, but it's a helpful reminder that this, institution has done extremely well because they are not paying attention to the volatility um, in the near term and that they are focused on their goal, which is long-term value creation. So um, every person will have to find their balance. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm more personally aligned with making investments uh, with a longer-term mindset uh, and then you know, less of a need to, to be checking the stock every day. For today's tip, you can take straight to the bank. If John Zimmer thinks he should check his stock price less than once a day, 
you should definitely check your investments less than once a day. As I've said before, the most successful investors do not get off the ride in the middle of the roller coaster. So if you need to close your eyes to enjoy the ride, do it. Put your blinders on. Your time horizon should be long, so there's no need to check your portfolio more than once a month. Money Rehab is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Our producers are Morgan Lavoie and Mike Coscarelli. Executive producers are Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Our mascots are Penny and Mimsy. Huge thanks to OG Money Rehab team Michelle Lands for her development work, Catherine Law for her production and writing magic, and Brandon Dicker for his editing, engineering, and sound design. And as always, thanks to you for finally investing in yourself so that you can get it together and get it all. We spend our money, money, money.